Scripture. But today we're beginning this new sermon series that's going to take us all the way uh, through Thanksgiving. And then we've hit Christmas, which is crazy to think about. Um, There's an audible gasp in the staff meeting this week when uh, Reed declared to us we only have seven Sundays left before Christmas Eve. Seven Sundays. And um, yeah, I tell you, I don't know about in your world, but in church land, that's tomorrow. Um, but for all of us, I think we can feel the, the treadmill picking up speed, and um, we all know the game, family gatherings and, and parties and calendars filling up, shopping lists. Um, and with all that good fun, though, with all that good fun comes this side effect that we don't typically talk about. Um, like, it's the most wonderful time of the year, but there seems to be this undercurrent that often comes with it. It might be nostalgia that's coming up or family dynamics financial pressures or deadlines, Um, but I feel like overall we don't come to this season year after year nearly prepared enough. Um, And so so this morning for the next uh, four weeks, we're going to be looking at how we can more intentionally approach the holidays. You know, one of the biggest challenges I think Thanksgiving and Christmas bring us is too much, too many activities, too many emotions, too many things to get done. And it's like by New Year, we're just toast. And so here's the goal of this new series. The goal is for us to think about more intentionally and deliberately what the holidays are going to look like for us. And to do that, we need to be ready to say yes to important things in our life, and we need to be ready to say no to things that aren't. So we've called this new series, Love This, Not That. Love This, Not That. Bill Young gave us a a really good word a few months ago that stuck with me in the pulpit. Um, He said, as Christians, our goal is to keep the main thing the main thing. And so the question is simple. What does it look like for us to strategically think about where we're going to put our energy and our focus, not just at Thanksgiving or Christmas, but all year long? And here's how we're going to tackle this. We're going to walk through the book of 1 John over the next four weeks. That might seem a little bit random, but let me just set up 1 John for us this morning. Um, 1 John was written in some crazy times. It's one of three very short and pointed letters from this guy known as the Presbyter. Presbyter is is the Greek word for elder. It's where we get the word Presbyterian church, a church led by its elders. And this Presbyter, this elder, he's writing to these house churches in this region called Ephesus, and it's clear that things have gone haywire. They're fighting over what they believe They've experienced this exodus of people who have walked out of the church and no longer claimed Christ as the Son of God. And now these same defectors are influencing the church from its calling. And as we study this letter, it seems almost as though the priorities of God's people have gotten out of whack. So this elder, he traditionally is known as John. He pins this letter in the midst of this chaos and he encourages the church to go back to its roots in order to reprioritize its life. In fact, it's not so much a letter as it is a a sermon. And the theme of this sermon in 1 John is really clear. John says, there's some things that God calls us to fall in love with, and there's other things that our love was never meant for. Love this, not that. So this morning, I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles open, uh, let's let's turn to 1 John 2, 3 to 4. 1 John 2, 3 to 4, almost in the entirely back of your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles open, let me invite you to close your eyes and just listen, because this, this reads really well. It's, it is a sermon. Let's just listen to this, starting at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. 
Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in whom truly the love of God is perfected, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm not writing you, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth, O oh God. Love the light, flee the darkness. Did you catch that theme? Uh, love the light, flee the darkness. It's a perfect theme, I think, for daylight savings time. But one of the elders' favorite topics, hands down, is light and darkness. In fact, you can make a solid argument that the same man who penned this letter also wrote John's gospel. And if you buy into that argument, here's the fun part. The gospel of John begins with almost the exact same theme. Look at this up on your screens. The first, first, very first words of, gospel, of the gospel of John it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life is the light of all humankind. Now, if I lost you, listen to this part. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will never overcome it. The author of these two books was obsessed with light and darkness. He said Christ is this beacon of hope, right? This light that, that covers over humanity, but there's a reason for that. Because there's this darkness we've got to talk about. There's this spiritual nightfall that also covers the earth. And here's the thing. It's kind of like this eclipse that began with Adam and Eve in their fall and just spread like wildfire from one to another to another. And John says, don't miss this. If we're going to follow Christ, we've got to love the light and not the darkness. And this is one of the most common themes in life, right? Like you don't have to be a churchgoer or open up your Bible to know this. Like, light is good, dark is bad. Our mothers used to say to us all the time, nothing good happens after sundown, right? And they told us that because their mothers taught it to them. And you know that we'll teach it to the next generation. Look at this in our letter. God's word says this. I'm not writing you anything new. This isn't some new idea or new trend to keep up with. This concept, this commandment came to you from the very beginning. Love the light, flee the darkness. And just so that there's no confusion, John unpacks that for us. He says, this is what this means. 
Whoever says he's in the light of Christ but hates his brother has lost his gear. He's completely off. That man is walking blind and in darkness. So with all that context, let me ask you, what in the world does that have to do with Christmas or Thanksgiving? I want us to think about a time when, uh, when the holidays didn't go quite as planned. Anybody remember that time? Maybe it was the, the time that you overcooked the turkey or the time that you got stranded in the snowstorm or, or the time that the flu bug hit you and then your entire family. I think uh, everybody's got that one holiday memory that they wish they could forget, Right? I shared with you last year, uh, my favorite holiday memory was on Thanksgiving. We were all sitting down at the Thanksgiving dinner table, and uh, my grandparents' dog went upstairs into my cousin's bedroom and ate the pet bird. Do you remember that? Like, that is irony at its finest, isn't it? That's, that's my favorite story of, uh, of the holidays. Um, but, but now that we've warmed up, I, I want us to go one step further because I want us to get real for a minute. Um, I want you to think now about that relative or that friend who said something over the holidays that kicked you in the gut. Anybody got that memory stored in their minds? I think for some reason, sometimes some of the most raw, hurtful moments somehow find their way to the same table that was supposed to bring us together. And really, there's no greater togetherness than the holidays. You know, Thanksgiving and Christmas are by far the highest travel times of the year. We know this. In fact, last year, over 112 million people traveled at Thanksgiving alone. And here's where I'm going with this. I think sometimes in our flesh and in our sin, if we're not careful, being together might actually keep us apart. I overheard a pastor once say, it really doesn't matter how awesome your family is. All it takes is one in-law. Every family has dynamics, right? And if we're not careful... If we're not intentional with seeking God's will for us, we might end up walking in the darkness instead of pursuing the light. Back before this letter was written in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself gave this commandment. He said in John 13, 34, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Let's keep this simple. The elder was clearly well-versed in that teaching. Look at this in 1 John 1, 5 up on your screens. He says, this is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we're lying, and we don't practice the truth. Now, whoever loves his brother or sister abides in the light, but to hate them is to stumble over yourself in the darkness of night. But here's the challenge that comes with the holidays, right? Togetherness means messiness. I think one of the biggest challenges that we face as, as Christians who are called to follow the example of Christ is something that I've come to call the effect of compounding conflict. My wife, Jen, um, her dad was an accountant. Her mom was a banker. And I kid you not, on our first date ever, I asked Jen out to go with me to the Olive Garden. And her response to me was no. She hung up the phone. I was devastated. And a few minutes after working this out with her roommate, she called me back and she said, how about Subway? And right there, I fell in love with her. <laughs> no, but Jen's so, Jen's so frugal, right? She, she's, she's grown up with this idea of something similar called compounding interest. And we all know what that looks like, but let me just lay it out for the sake of the argument. Let's say you have $10,000 and you make 8% interest annually. 
The first year, you just made $800. But the second year, you now invest $10,800 with another 8% gained, and now you've made $864 in interest. And at the the end of 30 years, if you invest $10,000, you're now worth more than $34,000. That's a sweet deal. But let's talk about compounding conflict. That's a different experience. You know, compounding conflict piles up the debt of our debtors. It it keeps score of the the sins of those who have sinned against us, and it compounds over time until the mess is so big, we're not even sure how to untangle it. That first Christmas, you you let that one comet go because it's Christmas and and you're new to the family. That second Christmas, you, you talked it over with your loved one on the way home because, well, you were hurt by it and you needed to work it out. That next Thanksgiving, maybe you finally got the nerve to speak up to that that loved one right in front of everyone and shots were fired. And next year, the gifts just keep on giving and giving. Am I preaching to the choir this morning? And yet, here's what God's word tells us, something in complete contrast. Jesus says, if you're going to walk with me, you've got to follow my lead. And there's a choice to be made, an intentional, deliberate choice to love each other to do anything less is to walk in darkness anybody heard of this new paint called vanta black vanta black stands for this vertically aligned carbon nanotube arrays i have no idea what any of those five words mean but but to the naked eye they say that this is the maddest flattest blackest paint ever existed it soaks up 99 percent of all of radiant light. The paint has these things called nanomatifiers that remove even the slightest shine or reflection off of its surface. Look at this picture. That's a picture of crumpled up foil, but the crumples go away even though they're still there. You can't see it through the black. It looks flat. Now just keep that image in mind. God's word says to hate is to leave the reflection of God's light behind. And to walk in darkness. You know, and hate's a strong word, right? Like we might say things like, well, I hate this meal or I hate the weather. But when it comes to relationships, I think our knee-jerk reaction is sort of distance ourselves from that word. I mean, for the most part, nobody wants to be known as hateful. So we justify it to ourselves. We say, well, I don't, I don't hate that person. I just don't really like them. But in the scriptures, this word for hatred seems to have like a, a volume dial on it. When we say the word hate, we interpret it like a volume of, of 10, right? We, we think hate groups or, or violence or, or murder. But the word that John uses to describe hate is meseo. should be up on the screen here so if the Greek nerds can get into it with me. It's used throughout the scriptures to describe all sorts of volume levels, right? So in Genesis 26, the word describes a discord between Abimelech and Isaac. In Deuteronomy 24.3, it's used to describe a marriage that's falling apart and the husband wants a divorce from his wife. In Isaiah 60.15, it's used to describe the enemy's slight against Israel. Paul uses meseo in Romans 7 to explain his frustrations with doing the things he doesn't want to do. He says, I hate that I do what I'm not supposed to do. And then we turn to our lesson this morning, and John uses the same word at any volume to describe the heart of one who's walking in darkness. You know, I think before we jump into the fray of the holiday life, 
the first filter we might consider is the contrast of light and dark. Because to walk into a family gathering with darkness already inside of us is not to walk with Christ, but to walk with the enemy. I love how Ephesians 4 adds to this. Ephesians 4.31, it says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. And instead, be kind and compassionate to one another. Why? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Love this. Not that. There's a famous story about Abraham Lincoln after the Civil War had come to a close. And Lincoln found himself surrounded by a crowd of Southerners. And in his speech, he was far too kind to this crowd and treated them as family instead of the enemy. And the northern congressman had watched this go down, and so he came storming into the president's office, just angry as all get out, and he lit him up. He said, the last thing this country needs is a president befriending the adversary. He took it one step further. He said, we should have shot those traitors when we had the chance. Lincoln thought about it for a minute. And he said, am I not destroying my enemies by making them friends? I think one of the most ageless questions in all of Christianity is, how can I know my faith is real? How, how can I know that this relationship with God is, is genuine? This relationship with Christ is working. And our passage this morning would answer that question with a question. Is it daybreak in your life? Or are you hanging out in the shadows? Is the life that we live caught up in the love of Christ and the, the brightness of his grace and mercy? Or is it wrapped up in the hatred and anger and darkness of night? And don't get me wrong, nobody's perfect. We all struggle with this. We all stumble. We struggle to love those who maybe we find unlikable, maybe even unlovable. And yet look at what God's word teaches us. Look at this in verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Look at this in verse 6. By this we may come to know him that we are in him if we walk in the same way that he walked. Jesus couldn't have been more clear. Love others as I've loved you. To claim the light while walking in darkness is to be a walking contradiction. Andre Cassagnus uh, changed childhood forever back in the 1950s. He invented something called the Le Ecran Magique, which is the best French you'll hear from me all year. In English, we've translated it as this, the magic screen. And inside of the screen was this aluminum powder fine as dust, and on the outside of this plastic box were two little knobs that you could move back and forth. The first toy ever made where a child could draw whatever he wanted and then shake it away. By 1960, the Ohio Art Company bought the prototype and they called it a... Oh, good, you're still with me. And in the next 40 years, over 100 million were sold. And I think sometimes life is like that Etch-A-Sketch, right? Like it's not until we erase the hatred inside that we can even begin drawing again. Like living its life to its fullest again. It's not until we can find our, in ourselves to move on with that loved one before we really fully understand what it means that Christ loved us. But for some reason, it's so hard to flip that toy around and shake it. And this new law isn't some new works righteousness. It's not some new legalism that's been added to the law. 
No, what John wants this early church to understand, what God's word wants us to understand, is that there's an entirely new height and length and breadth and depth of God's love for us. And he says not only that, he says, do you realize that the darkness is fading away and the real light is already shining? So why in the world would you leave the light behind and join the losing team? One of my favorite Christmas time scriptures comes from Isaiah 9-2. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. But here's the reality. Um, whoever hates his brother doesn't even know where he's going. It's so dark he's blind. Growing up, my uh, twin brother and I got to be the sheep for the annual Christmas pageant. And on this particular year, my older brother was the shepherd. And I don't even remember what happened, but one evening at rehearsal, a, a fight broke out among the sheep and their shepherd. <laughs> and I got put, put in timeout by this Sunday school teacher. And I remember I was pretty embarrassed because I was used to being put in timeout by my parents. But it's a whole different ballgame when you get put in the corner at church. And I remember my Sunday school teacher came over to me after I had some time to cool off. And I don't remember a word she said. I was pretty upset. My arms were crossed. I was crying. She knew I was having a rough night. So here's what I remember. Um, she held up her finger, and then she held up mine, and she said, will you sing with me? I said, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Which one are we going to love? Our brother or the darkness? Which one are we going to love, our sister or our blindness? Now, the elder said, I'm writing to you because your sins are already forgiven. The elder said, I'm writing to you because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, he said, because the word of God already abides in you. I'm writing to you because you have overcome the evil one. And maybe you're thinking, thanks for the motivational sermon, Ryan. Please don't ever sing again. <laughs> maybe you're thinking, I wish it were that simple, but it's really not. But maybe it starts with some simple steps. What if we just began by this morning asking God to change our heart? It was by his grace that we came to him to begin with. Or what if we practice right now taking our thoughts captive and, and turning them to Christ four weeks before Thanksgiving hit? This, by the way, was Paul's greatest fighting tactic. 2 Corinthians 10.5, he said, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to him. What if we asked a friend maybe to walk with us in this so that come the holidays they can check in on us and we don't have to do this alone? Because the bottom line is this. Daybreak's already here. The light's shining and the darkness is fading away. Revelation 21 paints us this perfect picture of what's coming to fruition. It says this new city will no longer need the sun or the moon to shine over it because the glory of God is now its light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. Which team are we playing for? Love this, not that. 